Okay, first of all, <laughs> as if Michael really has any right to talk about somebody going long <laughs> with a message. <laughs> Well, it's been fun being one of your pastors at Rocky Peak. It's been a good time. Hey, secondly, if you're joining us for the very first time, hey, welcome to Rocky Peak. We're really excited that you're spending the service time with us. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. We're about to go into a time of teaching. We're going to have a lot of fun this morning. So if you would do me a favor, if you open up that program you got when you came in, inside is a message note sheet. That's a great tool to help you follow along with the message or also to be able to write down anything the Holy Spirit might be prompting you to remember. I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we're going to get started this morning. Father, we are here this morning because we want to grow to be more of your reflection in our lives. Father, that's what we've been called to be. You saved us. You created a new creation out of us. You gave us your Holy Spirit, and now you have set us on this mission to reflect you in our world. And so, Father, as we open up your word, which is living and active this morning, we pray that your word speaks to us individually. Speak to our specific lives, Lord. Teach us how to continue to grow, how to fall deeper in love with you, how to remove sin out of our lives. Give us an excitement to be more and more like our King Jesus. Father, as we go into this time, as I pray always, I pray that me as the communicator, I become less. I pray that you as our King of Kings, as our risen Messiah, that you become much, much more. Jesus, we commit this time to you and we all said, amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, I want to do a quick recap just to bring you up to speed in the series we've been in. Today, we're continuing the series we've been in for the last several weeks called Sent Going Global. Now, this series has actually been a third, the, uh, the third sub-series we've done in a longer study in one of the longest books of the New Testament, the book of Acts. Now, Acts was written by, the, by a Gentile doctor named Luke, who also wrote the gospel according to Luke. And what he's doing in Acts is he's giving an account of the early movement of Jesus, of how it started shortly after Jesus' resurrection, how it started small in Jerusalem, and how it grew exponentially with the Holy Spirit, not just in the Jewish world, but also spread out into the Roman Empire. Now, this morning in particular, we're going to be continuing um, a three-part mini-series we started in Acts chapter 15. What had happened is this church at Antioch had sent out the Apostle Paul on a missionary journey. And it's one of the first recorded times in history that the gospel is being presented not just to Jews, but to Gentiles as well. And so these Gentiles were embracing and coming to know Jesus. And so this raised a question in the church of Jerusalem. Does a Gentile need to convert to Judaism to be a true believer? And so last week in particular, we saw that as the church of Jerusalem gathered and they debated, they discussed a lot, they sought the Holy Spirit for him to lead their church. And they came to the conclusion that you did not need to convert because the Holy Spirit coming upon someone was, was proof enough that they were now part of Jesus' life, Jesus' family. 
And so as we can conclude this view of the church, or the church at Antioch and the Jerusalem Council this morning, what's going to happen is they're going to send a letter to these Gentile believers that is not only going to encourage them by letting them know you are part of the family of Jesus, but this letter is also going to address one of the biggest questions they now have. Now that I've given my life to Jesus, how do I live? What does this life look like? And so if you're following along in your note sheet, there's a section titled The Council's Letter. If you've got your Bible, open it up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15. We're going to be starting at verse 22. Now, before we jump in, what I want to do is I want to build some context for you. Now, if you weren't with us last week, I want to encourage you to go to Rocky Peak's YouTube page, go to our iTunes uh, podcast, and download and watch or listen the message from last week, because it adds a lot of context for what I'm going to be talking about today. But as we briefly recap last week, what had happened is some people from the Church of Jerusalem, not officially, just on their own accord, they went to the church at Antioch, they went to these Gentiles, and they introduced a false teaching, a teaching that I call Jesus Plus. And so what I mean by that is they told them, you have given your life to Jesus, but to truly be a believer, you need one more thing. So in this case is you need to convert to Judaism. This happens in the church today with something we call secondary issues, where we go, okay, you believe in Jesus, you've asked him for forgiveness of your sins, great. But until you can become saved, you need to believe that the earth is this amount of years old. Or you need to believe that revelation is about this. Or you need to have a Jesus fish on your car, or salvation is not going to work. And so what the danger of Jesus plus is, is that it teaches that the gospel of Jesus is not sufficient. And that is not true. And so if you are a brand new believer, as these Gentiles were, this is amazingly confusing. And so what we see is the Holy Spirit has led the church of Jerusalem to go, no, 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 we want to lift their burden. They are not only going to send a letter, but they're going to send a team of representatives, some of their heavy hitters, as a sign of unity, as a sign of fellowship to the church at Antioch to go, you are worth us standing with you. You are worth us being here. We are now family and we will stand together. So with that context, let's begin reading. Acts 15, starting at verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, who later on in Acts is going to become Paul's missionary partner, men who were leaders among the believers. Verse 23, with them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Now, let's stop right there because that intro alone is pretty extraordinary. And there's a couple of words I'd like you to underline or highlight in your Bible. The first one is the word brothers. This is a huge turning point for the Jewish believers in Jesus to refer to a church of Gentiles as brothers. 
If you've been with us in this journey through Acts, you might remember that race relations between Jews and Gentiles was not good. If you were a Jew, you viewed the Gentiles as less than you. You viewed them as unclean. There were rules about interacting and interacting and building relationships with Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile, that's the life you knew as well. And so this is pretty extraordinary that here is the church of Jerusalem the leaders, the apostles, referring to these Gentiles as brothers, family. And then the other extraordinary word is believers. Underline or highlight that word. That there they are at the beginning addressing the core issue. You are still Gentiles and you are believers in Jesus. What an amazing beginning. So to the apostles, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Verse 24, we had heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. Again, that's that Jesus plus teaching that they had heard. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. Again, they're adding, they're, they're speaking value into these early believers saying, we want to stand with you because we are all now family. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Let me stop right there. What I love that the church of Jerusalem is doing is they are modeling for these new believers how to seek wisdom. And so they are modeling that what we did was we didn't sit around going, what do you think is the best idea? We sought God's wisdom because he is the head of the church. We sought the Holy Spirit. And so again, they are modeling that our words don't really matter, but the Holy Spirit's words do. And he led us to a conclusion and we will follow and obey. And so he goes on again. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Verse 29, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. That's a bigger conversation when you're abstaining from food sacrificed to idols. It's talking about abstaining from idolatry altogether because that food sacrifice is usually an act of worship to a false god. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals. We talked about that a little bit bit last week. That's the kosher rules that in Jewish culture laws, you didn't eat meat that was bloody. You didn't eat it super rare because blood was considered unclean and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, what we need to do before we need to go any further is we need to see these requirements in the context that they were given. Because if we don't see them in the right context, then what can happen is we can misinterpret the heart behind them. We can misinterpret and think that the church of Jerusalem is telling them, you are believers, but here's an arbitrary set of rules you need to follow to measure up. Think about where these Gentiles were coming from. They had no frame of reference whatsoever of what it means to follow after Jesus. If you were a Jewish believer, while the Lord did an amazing transformation in their lives as well, as well, they still had a frame of reference. They had grown up being taught about Yahweh. 
They had grown up being raised in the Old Testament, the Holy Scriptures. They had been raised with the teaching of the Messiah. They had been raised with going to temple and building community around that. And so while a transformation still took place for a Jewish believer, they had some context. A Gentile believer had none of that. They were starting from square one. Let me illustrate it this way. Several years ago, the hotness on television was these survival shows. And what I mean by that, it seemed as if there were 300 show, survival shows out there. You could find one on any channel, and they were really entertaining. You had something, uh, some, uh, what's it called, Survivor Man. You had one that dropped people in the Alaskan wilderness. There was my favorite, anybody ever watched Man vs. Wilds? Man vs. Wilds was my favorite. It followed this British survivalist named Bear Grylls. Now, first of all, he must have had delightfully hippie parents. <laughs> Secondly, if somebody is going to survive in the wild, I'm going to put my money on the man named Bear. <laughs> but the purpose of all these survival shows were the same, right? It would take these people, it would drop them in an ungodly part of our world, and they would have to survive or teach you how to survive. They would teach you what to do if you fell through the ice in the Arctic, or how to find water and food if you were in the Sahara Desert. And, one, and part of the fun of watching these survival shows, and you know you did it too, is you would ask yourself, I wonder how long I would survive if I was in that situation. Do you know what the honest answer is for me? If I was in a survival situation, I would be dead in under 10 minutes. <laughs> and you know why? Because I hate nature. <laughs> I don't like nature. I love cities and concrete and the delightful trash smell you find in cities. <laughs> I don't like nature. I have never been camping in my life. Do you know why? Because I have a comfortable mattress at home. I have never been fishing in my life. Do you know why? Because I can walk into Vons and buy fish. <laughs> I don't like nature. And because I don't like nature, I know nothing about nature. If I was in any type of nature situation, I wouldn't just need a teacher or a model. I would need a whole new foundation. And I use that to illustrate where these Gentiles were coming from. They had nothing, but they heard the truth of Jesus and they accepted it. And now Jesus was their new foundation. And so these requirements that the Church of Jerusalem gave to them was not this arbitrary, soulless set of rules, but it was pillars to build on their foundation of Jesus. It was joyful expressions of their new life. See, the heart and the message behind these requirements is reminding these new believers that the old life was darkness. The old life was sin and death and despair. That is not you anymore. And so now, here are three practical steps. Here are three pillars to build on your new foundation to live in your new found freedom. That is why they were given these requirements. Now, we're going to dig deeper into those requirements later on, but let's keep reading. Verse 30. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. 
The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. Think about the encouragement that a new believer is hearing. One, you're being told that your identity in Christ is secure. There's none of this Jesus plus teaching. But secondly, when you first come to the Lord, you have a very unique hunger, don't you, to begin learning and building on that foundation. And now they were being given these practical steps. And now these apostles and leaders and teachers from Jerusalem were staying with them. We don't know how long they stayed with them, but it's likely they were discipling them, teaching them, growing them, giving them, a, giving them more to build on their foundation so they could stand on their own. Verse 33, after spending some time with them, they were sent off by the blessings, by the believers with the blessings of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the way of the Lord. So that's our scripture for the day. And so what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to dig into these three requirements because the truth of them is that they, are, they were relevant for those new Gentile believers, but they are just as relevant for us today in our daily lives. But before we dig into those three, though, I want to look at a core big picture truth that these three requirements are all supporting. So if you're following along in your note sheet, you have a section titled, Our New Reality. And your fill-in is this, because of Jesus, we are now brand new. Because of Jesus, we are now brand new. And if you're following along with your notes, would you take your pen and would you put a box around brand new or arrows, flames, whatever catches your eye to it? Because that is key to this entire teaching and this entire section of Acts. When we give our lives to Jesus, I like how Pastor Michael puts it, when we cross over that divide, when we realize that Jesus is real, that Jesus loves each and every one of us, that Jesus forgives us of our sins, that Jesus died and rose again to conquer sin and the grave, that he fills us with his Holy Spirit. When we give our lives to Jesus and become Christ followers, hear me clearly on this, we don't simply become slightly better versions of who we used to be. We don't simply become, whoa, Dre's pretty much the same, except I maybe try to curse a little bit less. Or Dre is pretty much the same person and now I go to church on Sunday mornings. The reality of what Jesus does is that Jesus changes us from the inside out. It is a complete transformation where we become brand new. Earlier in the book of Acts, it describes our lives before Jesus and it describes us as being literal darkness. Another way that the Bible describes that is dead because of our sins. And so as we look at the act of baptism, that is an amazing metaphor for what Jesus is doing, that you're symbolizing your death to sin, but your life in Jesus. Jesus resurrects us. He takes us from darkness, fills us with his light, takes us from bondage, sets us free by breaking those chains, and now changes everything about us. It changes the way we think, and therefore it changes the way we act about everything. We are brand new creations. 
And so the teaching to the Gentile church, but amazingly relevant to us as well, is that the old life is no longer compatible with the new one. See, sometimes we believe this lie that I can follow Jesus with a little bit of myself and still dabble in the old life. I can give Jesus 60%, even 80% of my life, but there's still a percentage of me that holds on to my sin, that holds on to my old life. And the teaching we're getting from Acts is that that is not compatible because the old life will pollute the new one. You have been freed from the old life. Don't go back. They do not go well together. There are things in this world that do not work well together. And one of them is the old life versus the new one in Jesus. Now, this is so key to remember for our purposes this morning. It's one of the key themes in the book of Acts that I want to use an analogy that's going to burn it into our minds. And so I need to invite my friend Michael out. Uh, He's got a couple props I'm going to use this morning. Don't get nervous. Thanks, Michael. So if you and I have not had a chance to interact in any capacity, you don't have to engage in a conversation with me for long to learn that one of my love languages is donuts. I love donuts. And in particular, one of my favorite donuts is a maple bar. Now, there's a science behind a good donut, because there are bad donuts out there. And a good donut is somebody is, is some type of culinary master that determines things that work well together. In this case, you got frosting and bread. You could be glaze and sprinkles. In other cases, bacon on top of this, exquisite. (laughs) And you determine what works well together. You put it together, and it creates something beautiful. Hmm, good job, Rocky Peak Cafe. (laughs) Now, these ingredients make an awesome thing. But there are things in this world that should not be on a donut ever because they would destroy how awesome this is. This is kale. (laughs) Now, if you've been at Rocky Peak for any length of time, I have in the past said disparaging things about kale because it is disgusting. (laughs) Nature has evolved kale to be bitter so that we don't eat it. (laughs) But we do anyways. Kale is a monument to man's arrogance. (laughs) Now, if you were to take the kale and you were to combine it with the donut, it will destroy it. My, that has an aftertaste. Mm. Excuse me. (laughs) Now, I'm having fun, but you understand the point I'm trying to make is that our old life was marked by sin, was marked by destruction, was marked by hate, was marked by arrogance, was marked by immorality. Our new life is marked by Jesus. It's marked by joy, it's marked by freedom, it's marked by hope, it's marked by purpose and power and conviction and relationship. And so the message from our passage today is that the old life is not compatible with the new life. 
The old life will pollute the new life. But our call as Christ followers is to continually shed the old life so that we can experience more of the freedom in the new life that Jesus has given us. So now that we have that context, we can dig in and get a better understanding of these three requirements given to the church at Antioch. Now, before we do, let me say two things about this. One, each of those three steps can be a sermon series all on its own. And so today we're only going to scratch the surface. We're going to do a 30,000-foot view of these topics. Secondly, these, to these steps were given to brand new believers. And if you're a newer believer, these are amazing steps to be able to build on your foundation of Jesus. But if you've been walking with Jesus for a length of time, understand that these are just as important for us as they would be for a new believer. See, a mark of the old life is a lack of humility. Is a, I get it, I don't struggle with this, I can move on. A marker of the new life is the Lord continually teaching us through the same truth so we can understand the richness of them deeper. So with that, if you're following along in your note sheet, we have a section titled Three New Paradigms. And Michael, you can come out and take this monstrosity away. And your first fill-in is this. The first step of living a new life is to leave our idols behind. We touched on this last week a little bit, that if you were a Gentile in the ancient world, most likely your entire life revolved around the worship of idols and false gods. And we see this in a lot of we see this in a lot of cultures throughout history. We saw this in the Egyptian culture, that much of their lives revolved around worship and worship of idols, temples to false gods. We see this with the Romans, we see this with the Greeks, we also see this in smaller cultures as well. And the truth is, for many of us, when we think of idols and idolatry, that's what we think of, right? We think of a very Indiana Jones and Temple of the Doom bowing before a giant statue or a bronze image offering some type, of, some type of sacrifice. And for many of us, when that becomes our definition of idolatry, we sit there and go, well, I don't bow to an actual statue, so idolatry is not a problem I have. The reality of idolatry is that statues, all those things, are an outward expression of a condition of our heart. See, in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel spoke of people and he said, they built idols in their hearts. Idol worship is an internal con condition in which I take a person, a thing, a title, a relationship, a substance, whatever it may be, and I place it on the throne of my life. I place it as my ultimate priority, and I place it ahead of Jesus, meaning I seek my purpose from it. I seek fulfillment from it. I seek guidance from it. it what's, it's what motivates me to get up in the morning. It's what defines me. It's what ultimately will bring me salvation. I like how one of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, puts it there on your note sheets. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. And now that we see idolatry as an internal condition, I realize, we realize that this is an issue that affects all of us. 
And so again, where were these Gentile believers coming from? They were transitioning out of a world that was devoted to idolatry, whether it was to a false god or it was declaring themselves God, very similar to our culture today. And what the Jerusalem church was teaching them that ultimately idolatry is an, idolatry is an issue of devotion. Each and every one of us in this room is, has devoted our lives to a God. And the question is, what have we declared to be God? Each and every one of us have, have sought salvation and fulfillment in the object of our devotion. But the important question you need to answer is, what is it? See, again, sitting in a church, there's, there's many of us that sit there and go, well, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my God. I don't struggle with idolatry. But hear me clearly in grace and in love. Simply saying it does not make it true. We are saved by grace. But if we are truly going to say that Jesus is the authority and sovereign God in my life, then we need to start backing that up with how we live and how we show our devotion. See, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be in chapter 17 of Acts, and we're going to spend an entire service on the topic of idolatry. So I'm not going to go too much further, but what I want to do is I want to give you one way to begin the conversation with yourself, to begin checking in your life, to see are there idols and what, the, and what idols have taken root. And one way to begin checking idols is by checking your identity. And so what I mean by that is what makes you, you? In a very polite way, why are you the way you are? What has defined you? What has made you the person that you are today? What are your hopes and dreams and desires? What are you choosing to build your life on? What is your compass? What is it that drives you? What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your time? What consumes your checkbook? Because when you start following that trail, you start to see what is Lord of your life. For some of us, when we start asking that question, we realize we may realize that status is the God of our lives. Whether that's a workplace status in that I want to be the best, I want to always win, I want to have the corner office, or one day I'm going to be someone, and when I get there, then I will have made it, then I will be fulfilled. For some of us, it's some type of title in our lives, maybe not a corporate one, but maybe a family one. I get my fulfillment from being a spouse. I get my fulfillment from being a parent. I get my fulfillment from being part of this group of friends. And these can all be amazing things, but they become idols when we sit there and go, you define me. You give me my salvation. You are what makes me, me. There's some of us that it's our hurts. The bad choices I've made, I feel like I can't get out of this decision. The things people have done for me, they have defined me, they have made me mean. I feel like I can't escape from that shadow. For some of us, it's substances, it's addictions. For some of us, it's sex and sexual immorality. And for some of us, it's Jesus. I've given my life to Jesus and he has changed me. And so I want to be devoted to him, meaning that Jesus is no longer a thing I do, but he is now the ultimate. He is my foundation on which everything else will build. 
See, the danger of idolatry in our lives is when you think of ancient idolatry, you think of them sacrificing to an idol, right? Well, the reality is when we struggle with idolatry in our own lives, we are sacrificing to an idol as well, and what we are sacrificing is our relationship with Jesus. And so, in the requirement given to the church at Antioch, what we see is an amazing opportunity. It's an amazing opportunity to live free from idols, no longer shackled down. And it begins by acknowledging that there is one God, one risen Savior, and that is Jesus the Christ. And what's amazing about this acknowledgement is now Jesus begins a journey to grow us, to make us even better. And one of the first important steps is learning how to remove the idols in our lives. And so... If we are going to be people that remove idolatry out of our lives, we need to be a people that are willing to be humble. They're willing to see humility and see that, hey, I struggle with this. Let me tell you what I mean. An amazing prayer is to sit before the Lord and go, Father, can you show me things that have become idols in my life? And that's also a scary prayer too, isn't it? Because he will. But like we talked about in our previous series, this is a good danger to enter because God does not reveal these things to us because he wants to tell you how awful you are, but because he wants to move you past it. And so a lack of humility was the old life, but embracing humility, embracing and acknowledging, I have idols in my life and I want to see what they are so I can move past them is the sign of the new life. Another practical step to begin to remove idols is by getting into the word of God itself. You know what's so important about the word is that the word, the Holy Spirit speaks through his word. It speaks to us individually. And within his word, the Holy Spirit reveals our idols. There are times when we're in the word going, oh my gosh, it's like he's talking to me. This is an idol in my life. That's the power of the word. And that's why the enemy wants to keep us from being in God's word. He would rather see us succumb to idol worship than to become freer in Jesus. And so again, we're going to talk more about idols, but there's a couple practical steps to get the conversation going. Now, the next step, the next requirement is this. Pursue unity. <clears throat> Pursue unity. Now, for the early church, one of their core values is something that I would call table fellowship. The early church was people after my own heart because an important aspect of their church revolved around food. And so what table fellowship is, it's a lot like you would picture it to be. They would share family meals together. They would sit down with each other and converse. They would learn about each other. They would grow deeper in their friendship. They would share their struggles and their trials. They would debate joyfully as family. They would get to know new family members. They would sit and eat and share. And that was a crossover from Jewish culture that had its roots in Jewish culture, that in Jewish culture, you valued table fellowship. In fact, to this day, the Jewish people are some of the most hospitable people on earth. But one of the differences where this got polluted in the time of Jesus to the religious establishment was you do not share a meal with people that are different or people that are beneath you. 
And so to the Jewish culture, you would not have fellowship with a Gentile over a meal because if you had table fellowship, that was initiating and engaging in relationship and that was speaking value into their lives. If you remember in the Gospels, Jesus often drove the religious establishment insane because he would sit and eat with sinners. And they were sitting there going, what are you doing? How could you possibly have relationship with those people? They're not like you. What is it that you're doing? So you see there's a core value to this. And so what the second requirement, the follow the kosher law given to the Gentiles, it was given to them so that they could preserve unity and have table fellowship. Now, there's a bigger truth behind this. It wasn't about following kosher law because later in the New Testament, Paul talks about this meat sacrifice to idols and he says, you know what? It's not sinful in and of itself, but what he gave the the Gentile believers was a charge. And he says that now that you are Christ followers, it is on you to take the initiative to create and preserve unity in our family. And the truth of the matter is that was not a charge just for the Gentile believers. That is a charge for all believers. If you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, you have given your life to him, then we have a responsibility to pursue unity when it comes to our family. Because the old life was all about division. One of the most heartbreaking results of sin is how it divides and how it destroys. If you look at our first parents, Adam and Eve, when the first sin happened in our world, what did it divide? It divided their relationship and it divided their relationship with God. And if you look at what sin does in our world today, it continually divides people. See, This is how our world works, and it's very similar to the world these Gentile believers were coming out of. Our world teaches us that you, your interest, your jobs, your economic background, your race, whatever it may be, what makes you you puts you in a camp, and what makes other people them puts them in a different camp, and these camps have to war against each other because your job in your camp is to tell all the other camps that you're stupid and wrong. And we feel this tug to fight. We feel this tug to, no, 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 no. You need to think and do exactly as I do. Because any differences are wrong. And we see the devil in this. We see the act of sin because it keeps us as a race divided, arguing, fighting. Because we, if we are unified, we would be better together. And we fight over everything. <laughs> we fight over politics. We fight over economic issues. We fight over race. We fight over justice. But we also fight over stupid things. We fight over sports. We fight over movies. It seems like if there's an opportunity to fight, we as a people, we're going to take it. Have you ever read a social media comment that just broke your heart? Have you ever seen the division that happens in comment sections of any website out there? I'm part of a very small YouTube channel, and we put up a video about a month ago, and people hate it. And they are letting us know in the comments. We have been called awful things. We have been called idiots. We are being told to kill ourselves. And you hear this, 
And you might be thinking, wow, did you, you must have put up a video on the Second Amendment or one of the presidential candidates. It was a video about the movie Ghostbusters. And some of us might go, well, that's just the internet. No, that's just people. And I'm guilty of that as well. And what makes us even more tragic is that we as people, we as that tug to divide, we bring that attitude into the church. And churches become a war zone. A congregation becomes warring camps where we fight, where we don't get along. And we wonder why the outside world doesn't see this as a warm invitation to come and join us. See, now don't get me wrong. Much like the Church of Jerusalem, there is something that distorts the gospel of Jesus, such as Jesus plus teaching. We will fight. But we often fight over the silly things. We fight over the secondary issues. If you don't believe that the gifts of the spirits are, are dead or that they're still inactive, you are wrong. If you don't believe that the earth is seven days old, seven hours old, millions of years old, or the evolution, you're wrong and you're not a follower in Christ. If you don't believe this viewpoint of revelation, you are wrong and you're a follower of Christ. There is only one translation of the Bible that is anointed by the Lord. And if you're not using that translation, you are wrong and not a believer. There's only one way to study your Bible. If you're not waking up in the morning, you are wrong and you are doing this wrong. There's only one way to worship God and it doesn't involve guitar or it does involve guitars. How dare a pastor wear sandals on stage because that is an affront to the Lord. We fight and we fight and we fight. And what we don't realize is that we allow division to become an idol. And I've used this word before, it turns us into curmudgeons. And that's not what we're called to be. See, the old life was one that divided, but the new life in the risen Jesus is one that unites. And we are given that responsibility. And so if we want to create a culture in which we are uniters, we need to take the initiative. And so let me ask you some practical questions, some steps, some steps that might help you get started to build unity within our family. The first step is this. What are you doing to get to know new members of your family? I don't just mean people that are brand new to Rocky Peak. I mean people that are new to you. Are you taking advantage of something simple like our meet people time? We don't do that because in the United States you're constitutionally obligated to have a time where you shake hands in church. We do that because it's an opportunity to create family. Are you taking a step and finding a ministry to serve in that will expose you to more members of our family? If you're looking for a place to serve, something like First Impressions is an amazing place. It's a big ministry with a, lot of different, with a lot of different needs, but it also exposes you to a lot of different people at our church. Are you willing to take a step in the fall when life groups come back to join a life group to be exposed to more members of our family? How about this? Are you willing to learn how to do conflict well when it comes to fighting with your family? Because family, we disagree. We will have disagreements at time, and that's okay. But the question is, how do we do it? Are we choosing to approach conflict in a way that's looking for reconciliation, in a way that's looking for understanding? Are we choosing to approach conflict at all rather than letting it stew and build into bitterness? On that note, 
are you willing to humble yourself to say, I think if I want to do conflict well, I need a whole new set of tools for how to do this. Let me give you an example from my life. Several years ago, if you would ask me, are you good at conflict? My answer would have been yes. And the reason I say that is because when I looked at conflict in my life, I usually won. <laughs> and something that the Holy Spirit had to reveal to me was, I defined that I was good at this because I was, quote, winning. But the reality is I was destroying people. I was leaving destruction and wake in my, in my stead. I was awful at conflict. And so I needed a whole new set of tools. I needed to be humble and go, Father, I need you to show me how to do this with truth, but still with grace and love in a way that builds unity. Because something amazing about conflict and the Lord working through conflict is conflict has the opportunity to actually build a deeper unity. Are we praying regularly, Father, can you show me ways to be able to build into the unity at Rocky Peak? What an amazing prayer, isn't it? Think of what kind of church we would become if before we walked into this building as our cars pulled in or as we're praying with our family in the evening, if we say, Father, show us how to continually create and preserve, how create, preserve unity at Rocky Peak. Lastly, like the church, they were asked to sacrifice something. The Gentiles were asked to sacrifice the way they approached meals. Are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of unity? Are you willing to sacrifice some of the small stuff? Are you willing to sacrifice your chair? Are you willing to sacrifice your parking spot? Are you willing to sacrifice your time? Are you willing to sacrifice emotional energy to be able to build into other people? See, what I love is there in your note sheet, the Apostle Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. And what had happened is this church had fallen under disunity. Like happens in, in, in a lot of churches, they had all built camps around their favorite leader. And they were saying, if you don't follow this leader, then you're doing it wrong. So you had a camp going, Paul is the best leader. You had a camp going, Peter's the best leader. You had another camp going, the preacher Apollos is the best leader. And Paul hears about this and he addresses it in beautiful Paul fashion. As I paraphrase, he's going, what in the world? This is not how this should be. And he gives them this charge in your note sheets. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. See, that charge is not to become the same cookie-cutter person. And the example of the early church is we can preserve and we can make prior unity a priority in the midst of a beautiful diversity. They were still Jews. They were still Gentiles. We all have our stories, but we are unified by the same Jesus. So preserve unity. The last one is this. Live in sexual purity. Live in sexual purity. Again, let's think about the old life that these new believers are coming out of. In the Gentile world, they lived in a culture where uh, sexual depravity was the norm. And in fact, not only was it the norm in their everyday life, but it was the norm in their, false, in their worship of idols and false gods. In the ancient and Gentile world, 
It was very common that if you went to a temple to worship, that some of the acts of worship involved orgies or prostitution or many other forms of sexual, uh, sexual debauchery. Sex was a no boundaries, no limit proposition. And while some of their acts would rival this day and age, there's a lot of similarities between their sexual culture and the sexuality of our culture today. See, many people in our world, if they were to define sexuality, they would probably define it as a hunger, meaning similar to the hunger you have when you eat. And the definition would involve, well, you wouldn't starve yourself, right? You wouldn't not eat food or not drink water, so why would you deprive yourself of a natural hunger in your sexuality? And what that has done is that's distorted the view of sexuality, and it's given rise to a lot of confusion in our culture. It's given rise to identity confusion. It's given rise to a sex-saturated media where we fall under, well, sex sells, and that's what we need. It's given rise to industries like pornography, but ultimately what it's done, just like in their culture, is true of our culture today. Sexuality has become a false god. It has become where many people seek their identity. It has become where many people seek their definition, where many people seek their fulfillment or seek their salvation. And then you have what we would call a religious view of sexuality. And my guess would be that you don't have to be in the church all that long to kind of understand the simple view of sex. Well, the church would say that sex is between a man and a woman reserved from marriage. And that is true. But the danger is that for many of us, we have lost sight of the heart behind that. That that beautiful truth has become this rule that we kind of just toss around. And what we need to do is we need to take back God's view, his big picture view of sexuality. See, this, these new believers, this Gentile church, they were being given ground one that you are coming out of an old life. So rather than just saying, hey, it's reserved for marriage, just follow the rule, they were given context and heart for that guideline. They were being taught a new biblical view of sexuality. And it begins with acknowledging the fact that sex is a created act and it was created by our creator. And as the creator of this act, he wants it to be enjoyed to its fullest. And he understands the context of where it's best in. And so to begin to live in sexual purity means to understand God's heart and passion behind sexuality. And to begin to see that, what we need to do is we need to go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, we're introduced to the first marriage and the first sexual relationship. It says that the man and woman, Adam and Eve, were united to become one flesh. Now, the Hebrew word used there isn't just meant to convey physically, but it's meant to convey the totality of a person. That when you're united through this act and you become one flesh, that means that you are now united physically. You are now united emotionally. You are now united spiritually. And what's amazing about this act is that it falls in what we call a covenant of marriage. See, I love the biblical word covenant because often in our culture, the word promise doesn't mean anything. 
But the idea behind this covenant of marriage is that you declare to the other person that I am with you to the end of my days for good, bad, everything in between. And the act of sex is a reflection of that. And what's beautiful is that the marriage covenant and the act of sex to seal it is a reflection of God's covenant with his people. See, in the New Testament, the common metaphor used to describe Jesus' relationship with us is marriage, that we are the bride of Christ. And Jesus' promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never cheat on you. I will never break this covenant. And so he has given us this gift of the marriage covenant. He's given us this gift of sexuality to be a reflection of that promise. It's not there on your note sheet, but I love how Tim Keller writes in his book on marriage. He says that sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. I love that. I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Sex was never designed to be anything less than that. It's a reflection of the covenant we have with the Lord. And what's amazing about this is there's some people that would say, well, God reserves sex for marriage because he has a low view of sex. The reality is when we understand his heart, God reserves sex for marriage because he has a high view of it. And God's not ashamed to talk about it. He gave us the Song of Solomon. <laughs> now the temptation that we face is to lower our view of sexuality. The temptation we face is to make it not a big deal or to disagree with God in this. And understand why this is a very dangerous place to be, why this early church was told no longer to, to no longer live in sexual immorality is because when we have a low view of sex, we have a low view of God. Because when we have a low view of sex, when we say, God, you may have created this, but you don't know how this works. I'm going to tell you what's better about this. I'm going to put it in different contexts that you don't intend. When we have a low view of sex and we try to take control of sexuality from God, we are rejecting God's sovereignty in our lives. We are saying you're not sovereign. And so understand something. It's not a simple, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is we are rejecting Jesus' lordship in our lives. See, in your note sheet, I put that Paul is writing to these early believers in 1 Thessalonians, and he highlights this point. He says, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And so what we're doing by accepting God's leading when it comes to our sexual lives is we're saying, Father, we trust you. I may not always understand. Heck, I may not always agree, but I'm going to trust who you are. I'm going to trust your lordship. I'm going to trust your sovereignty in my life. I'm going to trust you as creator. Even if it's hard, I'm going to obey because you will honor that. Now, what's amazing about this example with the early church is they were coming out of a crazy sexual life. And God's response to them wasn't, man, you've made a lot of mistakes. You are dirty. I can't work with this. 
God's response was, that old life is gone. You are brand new. What's amazing about living in sexual purity is that whatever choices we've made, whatever hurts have been done to us, that leaves when Jesus forgives us. That is not held against us any longer. That if we are going to adopt a new sexual ethic, God's view of our sexual lives, we begin brand new because of Jesus. And so if we want to adopt a new view of sexuality, sometimes we focus a lot on the mechanics. Well, if you don't want to, if you don't want to be dealing with pornography, get the computer out of your room. If you don't want this, don't be in these situations. And those can be good things. But the reality is mechanics don't change lives. Conviction does. Mechanics are only as good as the conviction that's behind it. And so if I want a new view of sexual purity, then what I need to do is I need to go to the Lord that changed my life and I need to ask him to give me a new heart. And so for some of this, this might make you uncomfortable, but this is God our Father. We need to begin talking about our sexual lives with God. And it begins with a powerful prayer by saying, Father, teach me how to view sexuality as you see it. Teach me to have the heart for sexuality as you see it. Teach me to see it in the bigger picture as this covenant. Teach me, show me if this has become a false God in my life. And then with that foundation, we can begin to ask, Father, is there something in my house that needs to be cleaned out? Are there issues with pornography that is distorting my view of your creation? Is it the way I view the act of sex that I'm not giving credence to what you're saying and so I'm sleeping around or I'm living with my boyfriend and girlfriend before we're married or I'm breaking covenants with my spouse and having physical affairs or emotional affairs? Father, is my sexuality the only thing that defines me or is there something more? And one of the amazing things about walking in sexual purity is it can be really, really tough. And one of the gifts that the Lord has given us is to not venture alone. He's given us him, he's given us his spirit, but he's also given us our family. And one of the amazing gifts in this journey is that the Lord will provide people in your life who are safe people, who will love you, who will listen to you no matter what you have to say, and who love Jesus and will always seek him on your behalf. And so if you're looking to make some changes in how you view sexual purity, then one of the best first steps aside from going to the Lord is by going to your family, by going to one another and beginning a journey together. So as I wrap up, I just have one last question to ask you there on the back of your note sheet. What life, which life are you choosing to live? Are you choosing to revert and go back into the life of bondage, the life of sin, the life of darkness, the life of destruction? Or are you choosing to live in your freedom because of the risen Jesus? Are you choosing to live in his resurrection? Are you choosing to live as the son and daughter of God that you are? Are you choosing to live in his guidance and his leading? Remember, you are no longer dead, but you are now alive because of the power of Jesus. And so as we leave this place this morning, let this have just been the beginning of an amazing conversation between you and the Lord. Let this have been an encouraging time in his word in which he begins to, he begins to show you deeper and deeper who you now are because of him. 
And as we wrap up our time of service this morning, we invite the band to come on out. And we're going to sing one of our favorite songs at Rocky Peak that really highlight this change that Jesus has done in our life. And so let's pray. Father, we are not the same because of you, and we are grateful for that. We are no longer dead. We are no longer defined by our shortcomings and our burdens. Father, we are not defined by our mistakes. You have forgiven us, whatever that may be. Your blood has washed over the sin of the world. I know there are times when people sit there and go, I don't know if Jesus can wash over my sins. My sins are too big or they've been too habitual or they've been a part of me for so long. And the truth is you have washed over all of it. You declared on the cross that it is finished, that sin no longer defines us. Death is no longer our penalty, but we are now resurrected with Jesus. And Father, with that, we want to be a people that are embracing our new identity more and more each and every day. Father, as you speak to us this morning, whether it's revealing issues of idolatry, whether it's revealing divisiveness, whether it's revealing issues of sexual impurity, remind us that you want to remove that bondage in our life. You reveal it not to push our face down into the mud, but to lift us up and to continually make us new. Father, as we sing these words, let this be a declaration of who we are because of you. Let this be a declaration of what this church stands for. Let this be a declaration that Jesus is king. We love you, Father, in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand together. What an amazing declaration. And what makes it so powerful is that it's true. See, so you are no longer defined by your sin and your shortcomings. You're no longer defined by darkness but you're defined by Jesus' power now. You're defined as his son and daughter. And so as we leave this place, like I said earlier, let this just be the beginning. Let this be a day, let this be a week, let this be a year in which you're drawing deeper into your true identity as a child of the king, amen? Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, over to my right, your left, along that back wall are some amazing men and women that are part of our prayer ministry. They would love to pray with you before you leave. I say this every time because it's true. You have to be here next week. Now that you've heard me say it, you have no choice. We're kicking off a brand new series called Piercing the Darkness. We're gonna see as Paul continues on into another missionary journey and takes the gospel of Jesus deeper and deeper into the heart of the Roman Empire. One way to help us prepare for the series is inside your program, there is a small invite card. Is the Holy Spirit putting somebody on your heart, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, to invite them to come and see what God is doing? Because as God is meeting us here, we are excited when God meets others. Amen? We'll see you then. Have a great week.